This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, CNN senior legal analyst Laura Coates talks about her time as a federal prosecutor and discusses her book, Pursuit, a Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. People think about justice, as you well know, in this very binary way. They think about, okay, you must mean a trial, there'll be a conviction or an acquittal, and then justice somehow is miraculously served. But when we think about it in this notion of that binary way, we find ourselves in the cycle of thinking that the ends will justify the means. Mm. And frankly, it's what happens in those means, the in-betweens, the collateral damage that occurs. She's interviewed by Kristen Henning, an author, Georgetown law professor, and director of their Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Laura, it is wonderful to be here with you today. It's such an honor to be here and talk about your new book. For me, too. I'm yes. so happy I'm here, and I'm such a big fan of your book as well. I'm a hold of that because it's phenomenal. So well, I'm so glad to share this table. You are absolutely wonderful. I appreciate that, <laughs> but we're going to talk about you today. Okay. <laughs> but if you know, we must, that's if fine. We must. We'll do that. But there'll be tremendous overlap, right? Yeah. Just, I mean, yes. just we, we talk about the same things. We're mm-hmm. two black women who are attorneys in the District of Columbia uh, who have given at least part of our careers to the criminal legal system, right? right? Except at opposite sides of the table. Mm-hmm. You as a prosecutor and me as a defense attorney. Right. So I, I think this is a perfect opportunity for us to talk about your book, Just Pursuits, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. And so this is going to be great. I don't want to waste any time. My guess is that you and I could talk for hours <laughs> I think about we that. Could. Just hearing we're kindred spirits and you said our criminal legal system, because yes. we both know it's a legal system aspiring to be a justice system, right. even though we came from different literal sides of the table and figurative, we were both at the table knowing that That's same right. concept. And we're going to come back to that. I definitely mm-hmm. want to talk about what does it mean to have a seat at the table yes. as a black professional. But yes. before we get there, I, I want to make sure all of the listeners have the foundation mm-hmm. for what your book is about. And so, I mean, I think it's clear that the first sentence of any book tells a lot about what mm-hmm. this is going to be about. And your first sentence is indeed quite powerful and compelling. You say the pursuit of justice creates injustice. And also very early in the book, you also said, I thought the job, and the job being your role in the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, prosecuting people for criminal offenses that occurred right here in the nation's capital. And you said, I thought the job would be an uncomplicated act of patriotism 
and that justice was what happened when a person was fairly tried and convicted for their crime. And so I thought that would be a great way to start. Can you tell us, what do you mean by the pursuit of justice creates injustice? You know, I'm so glad we're starting there. And as you're right, it's very intentional how you begin the book. I wanted people to be invited into this vicarious episodic experience, understanding what I think is often counterintuitive. People think about justice, as you well know, in this very binary way. They think about, okay, you must mean a trial, there'll be a conviction or an acquittal, and then justice somehow is miraculously served. But when we think about it in this notion of that binary way, we find ourselves in the cycle of thinking that the ends will justify the means. Mm. And frankly, it's what happens in those means, the in-betweens, the collateral damage that occurs. And I illustrate through the book the ways in which that concept of how can it be that you could create injustice by pursuing a conviction, I lead off the book talking about a very complicated notion where our immigration policy intersects with the law, right? The idea of being a nation of laws. But yet when I find out that a victim of a crime has an active deportation warrant and I'm required because of the law to turn this person in, and equate him with the person who has actually committed a crime against Mm -hmm, him. mm -hmm. The idea of, if I were just pursuing a conviction in that binary sense of how you pursue justice, you would overlook the obvious unfairness, the injustice of what's happening to someone who we've asked to report a crime, that we want to report these crimes, that is in this unfortunate and horrible position of either I report a crime, um, but I also face deportation, or I don't report a crime, and I invite further exploitation and victimization. And here we are in a world where so often your moral compass can point one direction and the nation of laws and what's ordered another. And what do you do with this chasm of what is right and what is lawful, what is required and what is just? And so I was quite intentional, even in the title, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness, for that very reason. And Um, I think if we overlook the instances where injustice occurs in that pursuit of that binary objective, we really miss the nuance, we miss the indignities, and we miss what truly is required in a just system. I I love that. I love that you went for the nuance, right? And you talk about dignity. I talk about humanity, right? right? That's really important. I'm going to come back to that story about Manuel, Manuel, um, because I think that's such an important story, the deportation story. But let's back it out a little bit. Um, and, and sort of tease it apart for the audience. So the I imagine, or not even I imagine, I know from right. you know personal experience and from your book that much of this complication that you're talking about in the pursuit of justice arises out of the meaning and the relevance of race right. in the criminal legal system. And so here's the thing, right? Both of us have practiced represented clients or uh, represented victims in the nation's capital. Right. What most people do not realize is that how profound and how stark the racial disparities are oh, in our court, absolutely. right? Virtually everyone who's written a book about the criminal legal system in Washington, D.C. says exactly what you say in your book. I can count the number of white defendants on my hand, right? Right. I can tell you that in 26 years of practice, I have had four white clients, period. And so it's, it's shocking, 26 years. And yet not shocking, given the experiences that well, we've seen. That's right? where I want to go. And yes. it's the idea, first of all, I don't even need all my fingers to count the number yes. of white defendants I ever saw right. in the courthouse, let alone the trials I was doing. Yes. And I remember sort of tongue-in-cheekingly, and I was serious, they didn't really know me at this point, 
one of my first days in the criminal courtroom, when I had the stack of manila folders and all yep. the matters I was going to be handling that day and that sort of baptism by fire moment, I had that moment of turning to a colleague who was sort of training me that day and saying, <laughs> where are all the white people? Yep. And him responding, on the bench, Coates. And in that moment, it was really that moment of, mm-hmm. you know, intellectually. I mean, I began in private practice, mm-hmm. and I was in the Civil mm-hmm. Rights Division before becoming an AUSA in D.C. So my, my views um, were policy-based in many respects. They were the idea of um, being presumed to fight on the right side. Right. Um, I had an intellectual approach in often ways, as many lawyers and law students do, about, right. well, here's what happens in the law. And you've got this esoteric notion of what the law is like. And you understand intellectually disproportionate impact and disparate treatment. And you know the ideas of overrepresentation. Mm-hmm. But then you go into a criminal courtroom. And the discussions about, well, it must be white officers. No, it's black and brown officers bringing these people in as well. <laughs> The idea of, well, hold on a second, it's always going to be about a different race of the victim and the defendant, the alleged perpetrator, and you see black and brown victims. And yet the same conversations are happening about how you are perceived. And Civil Rights Division, it was a foregone conclusion on whose side I was on, right? It was black and brown people, marginalized, having their rights infringed. Right. As a prosecutor, it seemed to be a betrayal. The idea of, well, how can you possibly be yep. in the position where the stereotypical the man, the white man, would be given this disproportionality, given this disparate impact, and even though your victims are overwhelmingly black and brown. And it really disrupts this, what I think should be a fallacy of, that black and brown people are, but, are supposed to occupy but one space within right. this criminal legal system. But it doesn't come without a lot of introspection and realizing, well, if you're going to have a seat at this table, what are you going to do with the power there? Realizing that black and brown people do not have a monopoly on crime, nor do we overrepresent in Washington, D.C. And yet in this quadrant system of the Capitol, we're a stone throw away right now here at (laughs) C-SPAN, you see that a stone throw from the Capitol are some of the seats of extraordinary injustice. And it plays out in courtrooms all across the city. That's great. Why don't we dig there? Because I really want to get to this uh, seat at the table, right? So you have this powerful chapter in your book where you are sitting in the cafeteria, which I could totally see, right? Um, Sitting uh, at at the courthouse and a defense attorney, a black Mm -hmm. defense attorney comes up, sits down and begins to basically call you out (laughs) for being a black woman who is a prosecutor, Mm -hmm. sending, you know, black men to jail. Um, And you... She asks you, so how can you do it? And your response is for justice. Right. And I will confess, as a defense attorney, reading it at first, I was like, that wasn't satisfying mm-hmm. to me as an answer. But since then, I've seen you talk about it even more yeah. and continuing to read your book, understanding that for you, it's very similar to what you just said, mm-hmm. that it's not just um, wh- what seat you occupy, but how you show up. Right in that seat. Right. And so can you say more about that? You've started to talk about it here, but in very concrete ways, what does it mean on a day-to-day level mm-hmm. to show up as a black woman in those positions? And let me just sort of add, I, I often get the question when I talk about criminal legal reform, mm-hmm. people ask me, well, would it make a difference if we just diversified all the state actors, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, judges, prosecutors, probation, defense? Um, and I think that's an oversimplified answer. So I love this notion of it's all about how you show up right. at the table. So what does that look like? What are we to do? Well, first of all, for the record, people who read that chapter, it was not you, Kristen, who came. <laughs> it was not me. It, <laughs> it 
it was not you who came and interrupted my beautiful Lunch. salted chocolate chip cookie that what? I was having as a form of escapism, yes. right? It was not you who approached me. So I'll just make the record clear. However, I suppose we would have a very similar conversation, mm-hmm. albeit I'm sure a less combative one right. than I described in the chapter. Um, but really, it's about both women believing mm-hmm. we had the proper seat at the table mm-hmm. and wielding our power effectively. But you have to realize the imbalance of power within this system. Certainly, the role of defense counsel, as you well know, is not only extraordinary, it's critical, it's required, it's so necessary, and it should be revered. But the decisions and choices you make are reactive to decisions and choices that have already been made, oftentimes Mm -hmm. by a prosecutor. The decision to charge or not charge a case, what charges to bring, the evidence that they're going to hand over if they abide by their ethical obligations to give you exculpatory information, to vet and have a healthy level of skepticism towards the officer's who seem to be regurgitating scripts from the Supreme Court in a way you say, really, the door was ajar, it wasn't just open. You gave chase, you didn't just run, and right. there was a furtive gesture and a right. waistband. Wow, this is taken exactly from a Supreme Court holding. Did you read that or what actually happened in this instance? How did you exactly smell the presence of narcotics right. within right. a crevice of a body as you walked by a fully clothed man? Interesting, Right. These notions of what a prosecutor's role is to be able to realize, and I, I didn't appreciate to the extent that I do now, but I learned very quickly that when I would stand up and say Laura Coates on behalf of the people of the United States, it necessarily included the defendant. It included protecting their civil rights as well, their Fourth Amendment rights, their right to counsel, effective representation, and to try to ensure that whatever plea decision they would render was not about the fact that they had the weight of the federal government against them, that they were thinking, I already had to pay for the presumption of innocence. I don't know that I can take much more. I'm already in jail awaiting trial. And so you're telling me, even though I'm innocent, you only recommend three years and I'm facing 10 to 12. So I'm going to make a cost-benefit analysis here. Well, the power that a prosecutor is wielding in those moments, all the things I just described, require you not just to have a robotic approach to the application and enforcement of law, but understanding who you are when you enter a room. And these battles of allegiance often come up in unexpected ways. I mean, Mm. I, like you, don't have the luxury of putting on sociological blinders when I walk into a room or thinking to myself, well, I'm going to compartmentalize. Here I am, a black woman, and here I am, somebody who is a wife, a mother, a human being, a proponent of civil rights, but i got to check all that at the door because I'm now a prosecutor. And that just means you apply it robotically. And one of the real irritations I've always had, and I know it sounds quite glib, but with the stupid mascot of the Department of Justice, this blindfolded woman, as long as you're not seeing anything, the scales of justice will just balance out. Just don't see anything, right? And so when you ask about how you walk into a room and what you do when you're there, um, take off the blindfold and see the world and the country for what it is because balance does not just all of a sudden coincidentally occur. It comes when you bring your entirety into that room. And so, much like in Washington, D.C., to paraphrase the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in mm-hmm. T-shirts I'm sure you see all over Georgetown and all yes. over the universities, it's a woman's place in the House and the Senate and the Oval Office and everywhere power is supposed to be. Um, you need to have civil rights proponents in every facet of our ecosystem. And we cannot be in a position where we think you can either be a civil rights proponent or a prosecutor. I mean, what does that say ultimately in the end? But you're right. I don't oversimplify it in the way of as long as we have black and brown people there, because what about officers 
who also abuse some power. And there are great officers, and there are also those who believe the color blue and under the color of law will trump every other color. So we have to think about it holistically in terms of what people believe the role of a prosecutor is supposed to be and how we pursue justice. I love that. I love that. I wish I want all my law students <laughs> to be listening and because mm. you're giving a lesson on how to occupy this space. How to right? occupy space yes. is a beautiful way to say that. Yes. Right? Yes. Right? Healthy skepticism, protection of the rights, even of the defendant, right? right? Um, not showing up uh, with an oversimplified perspective on what justice looks yes. like, but it's got to be a nuanced and complicated analysis. So I love that. I hope all my students are listening. But it's not easy, as you know. <laughs> it's not easy. Right? So let's talk. Yeah. So if I can, let, let's press, because I want to press you um, back on the the immigration, the deportation mm-hmm. case that you had, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Emmanuel, is that his name? Manuel. Manuel, Manuel of course. Um, and... What I found, you know, sort of fascinating about that story is you had a choice, right? You had a difficult choice. Um, You had to choose whether or not to notify your supervisor, whether or not to give him a little notice that he could be deported. But you knew that if you told him, he might leave. You had a choice whether or not to call the marshal, whether or not to notify ICE at all. And so you were forced to make this hard choice. And there was a powerful quote You say that I always thought if confronted with a justification for civil disobedience, I would act on my principles and not on a directive. Mm -hmm. But I felt like at the end of the day um, that you did act on a directive. And let me, I really want to say something that I really liked about this book um, a, a lot, which was you could have written this book in a way that made you out to be the hero, right? And I felt like with each and every story, you revealed your vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And there were even moments when I was reading and I said to myself, oh, I wish she had done Mm -hmm. something differently. But you were honest and you were transparent in this book, so I want to really appreciate that. This is one of those stories Mm -hmm. where at the end of the chapter we are left with but you follow the directive. Right. So I wanted to hear you speak more about that. Like, what was your thought process at the end of the day? How did you decide that, indeed, I have no choice but to let my supervisors and the marshals know? And then my second question is, would you do it differently today? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, first of all, I appreciate you acknowledging that honesty. And, you know, in the books that are written, I think oftentimes there is a temptation to self-aggrandize. That's sort of the Al Bundy reference of how you were the star quarterback. And I know I'm dating myself by making a reference of Mary the Children. Right, right. Maybe I'll use an Olympics one instead, there, right? right. Um, but the idea here of, I think if you're going to speak truth to power, you ought to actually tell the truth. That's right. And the truth is that there were moments when I felt like a champion and moments when I felt like a coward. Mm. Moments where who I thought I would be in the moment was not who I was. Mm. And, and realizing that some of the choices that you speak of frankly, are illusory. And yes, just as we talk about in America all the time, free speech, right? I can say whatever I want. Well, that's true, but they come with consequences. We can't just say something and not have accountability in many respects, but we still have this feeling of being able to do whatever you want. 
And um, in that instance, in, in the book, I talk about how, in many respects, um, yes, I could have made the choice to alert for somebody who had an active essential warrant. The choice would have led to consequences that are being ha- experienced even in places like Massachusetts right now, where a judge mm-hmm. alerted somebody and was indicted for having done so. Wow. The ideas of disbarment as mm-hmm. the consequence. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. certainly there were personal decisions that I made as a cost-benefit analysis in a sense of what would be the personal risk of doing this. And I didn't think I would make those sort of calculuses in my mind. I thought in my mind, that's when you snatch the degree off the wall and you walk out. Sort of the JetBlue Airlines person of going down the inflated slide and (laughs) say, forget it, I'm done with this. And then in the moment, you think about that and what that would mean and realizing, of course, it wasn't as if it was Hunger Games where I was appointed a prosecutor. I asked for the opportunity to do so. And what that meant was also abiding by the law as it's currently written and being able to um, pursue justice when the constraints of that. And so I hope when people read this book, they're not with the impression of, well, there were, you know, you can just do whatever you want. It's also if you find yourself saying there should have been an alternative, there should have been a different mechanism. The law does not compute and align with what we know is the right thing. That's where you've got the ripe, fertile soil for reform Mm. and realizing that do we really want a system where when I was in private practice, um, I had personal clients as a prosecutor. It's the United States. It's society who's offended, even for the so-called victimless crimes. It's the victim has a stance and has a position, but we really defer only so much to what their position is. And we think about deterring from the next victim. And so in that balance, if that's the case, if we want to ensure people are reporting crimes and society no longer is offended, then why do we create the impossible scenario? What if this was a sexual assault victim, not a car theft victim or a family of a homicide victim? Are they supposed to just have that same calculus because the law says this? And that's where as much as we have a checks and balanced system, we are constrained in ways that are not practical in the pursuit of justice. It's not fair that somebody with an active deportation warrant should be for staying in the country who hasn't so much as sneezed in the direction of a cop, a cop right. suddenly is equated with somebody with an actual rap, uh, rap sheet, a real one, that you want to hold accountable. And so, um, you know, I found myself even writing this book at times, Kristen, thinking, do I want to go there? Do I want to be right. so personal? Because on air, obviously, I'm talking about what the law is, how it can be interpreted, um, using my you know, information as a form of activism and helping people to understand mm-hmm. this system. Mm-hmm. But also I had to recognize that there were moments where, by definition, I'm sim- complicit. Right. I mean, by definition, you know full well when you're in a courtroom, yep. what are they calling us prosecutors? Government, government, we're that fungible to the point where I joke around sometimes. I remember one day I was in court and I was getting ready to schedule a status conference or a trial. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. That date doesn't work. I'm actually due to give birth. That date's my due date. And I remember the woman saying, really? The federal government's pregnant? The whole government's having a baby? Who's the father? Wow, this is shocking. Are we all going on maternity? Just sort of underscore the point of, okay, Your Honor, I I get it. I get it. We're that fungible. (laughs) But because you're that fungible, you are presumed that same monolith. Even the moments when what you believe is wrong the government's acting. And Absolutely. that was very difficult. And I, it was difficult, to be honest, um, to some expect, because I, I know that it would um, perhaps change people's perception of me, but that doesn't matter, because I want it to change your perception of how the system works. And, you know, my babies are seven and nine years old right now. One day, 
I won't be the center of the universe and they'll right. see that I'm a human being. And when they look at me that way, I want to be able to look them in the eye and say, here's who your mother was in a system, what she fought against, and hopefully what will not be for you. But right. here's what happened. I have to say, I appreciate the honesty. I think the honesty in the book gives it credibility, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you want to be a voice for reform and activism in your current role as a legal analyst for CNN, you've got to come and show up with honesty and credibility. So I really, really appreciate that. I also, the other thing that struck me in listening to you um, is I I almost see like puppets. Like Mm -hmm. there's somebody higher. That's because I have a big forehead (laughs) and a big mouth. You you see a howdy doody (laughs) ex-puppet. I I recognize that. My father's a wonderful dentist. That's probably the no. But I- <laughs> you're good. You're good. I actually see this like puppeteer hanging over you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, but like pulling strings, right? Mm-hmm. And pulling the strings of black and brown people. So you're mm. this notion of setting aside, setting, you know, men well up against the defendant. And I felt like it's almost like they're not in competition with one another, but that somebody's pulling the strings on both of them. And guess what? By this prosecution, understandably, that you, you know, had to bring forth because there was a car theft, but that two people get plucked, right, right from the system. And then right. you have another story where um, a, uh, the black family adamantly, you're watching, this is not your case, right. but the black family is devastated when they're watching the two defendants, two black male mm-hmm. defendants who killed their son, they're devastated because they don't want to see two more right. sets of parents lose their children. But it's like everyone, a victim and defendant, are, are sort of being manipulated by the system. And so maybe we can talk about power um, because this question of, of roles and where we sit at the table to me is just such a fascinating one and I think you take it on directly. But you know, we, I often, you know, as a law professor, I say to my students, even as a defense counsel, I remind them prosecutors are the most powerful people mm-hmm. in the room, just as yes. I've heard you say, True. because they are the gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. But then reading your book, I'm like, well, but there's so much that is, to, to what extent is that power illusory? And you sort right. of started talking about that. So what do we say, um, you know, to, to, to our, our students who are thinking about this work? Right. Um, And part of it, I'm sure, you know, you know, is the how you show up in this space. But is it true that the role of prosecutor, either as a line prosecutor and even sometimes as a supervisory prosecutor, you are delivered the cases that the police officers give you. You've got deportation laws that you are beholden to. So how, you know, what are we to say? Is it true that the prosecutors are the the most powerful um, players in the system? Prosecutors are the most powerful, I believe, in the courtroom. I mean, mm-hmm. unlike people's perception of the judge being the most powerful, right. um, because you have the opportunity to wield the most discretion. However, the power is often constrained, mm-hmm. and it might be very counterintuitive to think, here you are in this very powerful position and powerless against certain powers that be outside mm-hmm. of the courtroom, those that decide what the laws actually are. Because think about it you are constrained and as powerful as the laws you're able to pursue and prosecute. And remember, I was a career prosecutor, so I wasn't a political appointee, but I was under political appointees who obviously have the directive set by higher-ups and the like. I mean, I was hired under the Bush Mm -hmm. DOJ. So you can imagine how my discussions about voting rights restored for former felons went over in that interview process, by the way. (laughs) Um, But again, it's the idea of thinking about how that power is constrained. Even the case you talk about in that chapter of not their son too, the judge the most powerful at sentencing, still constrained 
mm-hmm. and effectively powerless because of the guidelines and there wasn't an opportunity in many respects to wield what he thought was the right and the second chance because he knew where the law and the nation of laws fits in. And so I think the, the most important thing to think about is just as our system of government is designed to have co-equal branches of government, we still require the checks and balances to avoid the abuse of power. And so it is the case within the criminal legal courtroom, right? This idea of thinking about how to constrain this power. But the issue for, for students, of course, as I always say um, to them, is, you know, you don't necessarily need to even be in criminal courtrooms or be criminal lawyers like our, we've chosen to do to have an impact on the system. Surely you realize that corporate America has an extraordinary role on the checks and balances. I mean, talking about the most powerful entities, special interest groups yes. have a great deal to say about the kinds of priorities that are set prosecutorially and through members of Congress and political appointees. Um, and then you have the elected officials, the elected DAs, who are beholden now to a campaign platform, mm-hmm. which is why you've got this so-called progressive prosecutors right. coming into play. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think to recognize that the power is constrained by forces in other branches is the best way to think about the system. And so figure out, for me, it was which, which so-called side or which, how do I want to wield my position in a way? Um, do you feel that it's the proactive or the reactive? Is it the gatekeeper or the gate closer? What mm-hmm. do you think is the most important part? For some, it might be through Congress. For others, it might be the judiciary. For others, it might be the executive branch of government, which, of course, is what I served under. But in any respect, it's sort of that Arthur Ashe moment of start where you are, use what you can, do what, use what you have, do what you can. I love that. And That's you right. can do that in areas of the law. Um, and frankly, you don't, you don't even have to devote. I mean, I've, I've pivoted like nobody's business. I've had a, sort of a thousand lives already under the practice of law because the connective tissue has always been storytelling. Mm. Um, and I think that people can pivot in ways towards the passion and the way they believe the system can be changed and reformed in their own private niches as well. Maybe it's journalism. Maybe it's the confines of law, of big law. Maybe it's as a defense attorney. Maybe it's in policy or prosecution. But it's an entire ecosystem. Right. And the more we just focus singularly on issues of reform surrounding a police interaction, well, you miss uh, the, the rest of lot. the iceberg, right? That's you right. know for That's well. Right. You miss everything else. There are injustices. You write about it in your book, The Rage of Innocence, yeah. the ideas of how this ecosystem operates. Imagine if people only thought about the headline police interactions. You would miss the overwhelming, the 90% of what really is going on because you think, well, that's the only power that can be wielded. So I tell, and you tell your students and through your book as well, talking about if you don't have an eye towards every facet of the ecosystem, the world will turn without you. Absolutely. Structural racism, economic variables. For the youth, for for those who are particularly vulnerable. You write about it. You know know this. And and the ways in which sociology interacts (laughs) and policy and uh, and again, it goes back to that system. mental health yes, all of and it. police yeah. has the panacea, which we yeah. know they cannot be That's the jack of all right. trades. That's absolutely right. And it goes back to that dumb mascot. I'm like on a campaign, right? Why are we blindfolding this, is, this woman and hoping really that everything will just happen in the end? At what in what way has if the justice system, so to speak, is the microcosm of everything else? Is it the one area over the course of American history where race just hasn't mattered? 
And we know that's not true. I mean, that's right. the whole point of both of our books, to be quite frank, right? Yep. Um, so this, I have to ask this, and I don't even know if there's an answer to this. Is there any one place where black and brown people should not occupy that professional space? And the only time I've ever had that thought was reading where you said in Manuel's story that the two ICE agents right. showed up. Mm. One was black and one was brown. And mm-hmm. I was like, wow, right. could I ever do that? And so I just, I did have that moment where mm-hmm. I wondered is there just some work that we right. just don't want to be the ones doing? But, you know, your, your, your point about treating people with humanity and dignity, and if we've got to um, follow the law, press the law, then somebody's got to do it with humanity, so maybe. So, well, imagine but. if we had, for example, more black and brown agents, age, um, agents of the law when you saw people being whipped under a bridge near Texas. I mean, would that make it better? Ca- you know, corralled in some <laughs> yeah, way. I mean, would yeah, that make it better? Would yeah. that be a? It's, do you think that humanity would come yeah, there? And, and you and I question. both know. Just, it's just because someone, as they say, not everyone's invited to the barbecue, right? <laughs> right, exactly. So, Hello. There, so but there are Hello. also there are also I would say, and I know you know this. If we relied solely on the momentum from just black and brown people who were impacted to make change, to make change, <laughs> we wouldn't yeah. have as much as we yeah. have. I mean, yeah. if you look at the sort of the the mug shots from the Freedom Riders, I hope you see white people there as well. No, and you will. Yeah. I hope you realize that, that there were Jewish allies who were yep. also lynched. Yep. And we see this happening at the rise of anti-Asian sentiment. We saw the Chinese Exclusion Act. We yep. caused the Trail of Tears. Yep. In every facet of our identity, we see a historical kinship. So it's difficult to occupy those spaces. But what is the alternative? Right. That you're not there? That you hope yeah. that there'll be allies? Allies, right. Ooh, it's hard. Or that we press the system from the outside in. I don't know the answer. Yeah. I wanted to put that on the table as one of those, for me, just intentions that. Yeah. So, but let's, let's go back to you and your professional career. So yeah. you've alluded to, you know, working at the Department of Justice, right? And, um, and doing great voting rights work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't until you got to the United States Attorney's Office mm-hmm. that you say there was a seismic shift and how others mm-hmm. perceived you. Yeah. You had been a trusted champion of the people who looked like you. And so for me, that goes back to this conversation we started a little earlier about really sort of the complicated relationship that the black community has had with prosecutors right. and police officers, to be quite frank. Um, and you, you talk about how black defendants would look at you, walk, you know, as you walk past and be shocked <laughs> that mm-hmm. you could be the one occupying the seat right. that they thought would be occupied by a white male. Um, and you devote, I, I think, a really nice chapter, chapter three, um, the chapter I love the title too, I Want No Part of This, mm. um, involving yeah. a black woman who was a victim of a crime herself. Yes. Um, and initially, she refused to come to court. She says, I don't want to come to court. I don't want any part of this. But she asked you a little bit more about mm-hmm. the, the defendant, and she learns that he's basically a child, a very mm-hmm. young person. So she decides, I do want to come, and I want to give a victim impact statement, but I want to plead for leniency. Yes. And just in this powerful, really quite moving victim impact statement, she says, Your Honor, don't make an example out of me, out of him, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Don't make an example out of him for my sake. He's a child. He made a mistake. Right. And so I just think that's such an important point. Um, and can you say more about how these conflicts play out, right, um, for uh, black victims and what it is that you say 
to a black victim in in moments like that, where there's so much distrust right. in the black community towards the, the system as a whole. Well, you know, that, that chapter, it always warms my heart because it was uh, sort of a shock to my system in the most beautiful way, that there was the, the assumption that a victim would want to throw the book at everyone right. who's committed a crime. But in, reala- in reality, it shows you the power of understanding intersectionality, the power, the power of an educated electorate, of course, and an informed and educated even victim pool within our society. The idea of understanding fundamentally what are the goals of our incarceration system, of our justice system. We often think too many people believe it's all about retribution and punishment, not rehabilitation, not reform, not avoiding recidivism, not the idea of alternate courts to address the actual root of the problem as opposed to locking someone up and throwing away the key and then giving them the forever stigma of being a felon such that they can never really be gainfully employed, let alone vote, which we know is not coincidental about right. that. Right, the pulling the strings. The pulling of the strings again, right? right? So, um, you know, when you think about that chapter and how the idea of wanting no part of it, it's sort of the uh, the play on words of her not wanting to participate right. in what she knew to be a flawed system with her as the pretext to justify the behavior of sending to this person. But also... The idea is that some people could say and throw their hands up and think it's an exercise in futility. You know, it's always the way it's going to be. The deck is always stacked. And you think you don't want to be on the other side of the hashtag. You don't want to be on the other side of the United States as versus as That's well. Right. There's That's the right. weight of the government. There are the presumptions of guilt that really accompany things. There are the um, being a beneficiary of the privilege of people looking at saying, hold on. Well, the United States wouldn't bring a case unless the person did something. Or the officer wouldn't have rested if they did something. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And having that be an advantage for the prosecution in many respects. Um, And some people look at this and say, inertia. This is always how it's going to be. Why? I want no part of it. I'm going to opt out. As opposed to opting in to advocate for what you know to be right. And knowing the role that she had was not an invited one. She didn't ever want to be a victim of a crime. But in that moment, she was compelled to stand up. And so when you think about um, just those moments of how and the role that is, is for some, they believe it's almost ceremonial, you know, the idea of, OK, we'll have a victim impact statement now. In that moment, it was, no, no, I'm going to tell you why I'm here mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to use me as some sort of moment just to rubber stamp what you were already going to do. And there's great power in that. And in that moment, she was more powerful Yes. than anyone in that courtroom. Um, and also there's the notion of second chances, how we dole them out in our society. You know, um, from affluenza and those yes. conversations, right, <laughs> to other, yes. mo- you write about that mm-hmm. notion in the book Rage of Innocence and thinking about that and the way we, we um, you know, we elevate black and brown children to mature adults who must have known what they were doing. We impute sinister behavior where none really might be. And then we look at their young white counterparts and think fragility. They think second chances are warranted here and they're welcome. And um, that's why I think the lived experience and, you know, you need not be necessarily black and brown to have the lived experience or wherewithal to recognize the imbalance. But it's certainly you need that perspective and sometimes it comes from those who did not ask for the opportunity to be a part of this system, but spoke up, showed up, That's as you right. spoke about, nonetheless. That's right. That's right. I love that. I hadn't really thought about 
her in that moment until you started talking about her being the most powerful player yeah. in the room. Mm-hmm. She exercised her authority right. in that space, showed up right. in that space and made a difference. Right. Um, and, and, you know, to the extent that she could. Right. right? right. Um, so I love that. I love that. We all, whatever seat we occupy, mm-hmm. even as victims, mm-hmm. have an opportunity to affect change. We do. And so um, I really, I really like that. So let me ask you, so in your role now as legal analyst, mm-hmm. and you've been an adjunct at, at, at George Washington Law School, um, uh, you have a radio talk show. Do you still do your talk I show? Do. Good. Every day, every three day? hours a day. All right, all right. Live. <laughs> so I guess my question for you now is, what is your pursuit of justice look like now, yeah. right? How do you show up as an activist now? You know, I, in many ways, still practice law. Mm. Um, and we do mean practice, right? Mm. As they practice medicine, we practice law, mm. hoping one day to get it right, you know, to have our hypotheses match the end result in many respects. And for me, that connective tissue is now, again, in the form of storytelling. That's what, in journalism, I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. I'm talking about and I'm helping to inform the public I, I am not somebody who strives to have an agenda or have my opinions rendered or stated under the guise of fact. I think people need to have the information. And I personally find the truth so compelling to yield but one result. And so I hope people see it as a form of activism to inform and educate in many ways. Um, and so when I think about all the ways of doing it, and I also try to broaden the horizons and the, and the thoughts, but it's always about the art of storytelling. And about showing people, I mean, the whole sign of if you're in New York, see something, say something. That's right. That's well, right. let's see something, say something. That's right. That's but I right. tell you, there were moments that I questioned and wondered, as probably you have, you still practice in terms of defense <laughs> counseling. You've got a vibrant practice, unfortunately, because it means the need is that much stronger. Absolutely. Um, but the idea of would I be most useful within the system, from the outside, speaking about the system with the credibility and knowledge that I had? For me, I resolved to be with outside of the system and removing a muzzle and talking about it from that perspective, but for others that might not be the choice to do so. But I do think that the law um, has benefited in terms of the problems with it, has benefited far too long for people being in the dark That's or right. believing, oh, you know what, I, this is not approachable or this is not digestible and I'll leave it to a lawyer to help me understand this. And how often have you gotten calls from family members and friends who say, I need a, can you help me? You're a lawyer. And you go, you don't need to be a lawyer to actually figure this one thing out. Hold on a second. You're asking this flow chart of a, of a viewpoint here. Here's what you can do and help people to realize their own agency in this, right? Um, and also, I hope that the ways in which people show their, their anger, their frustration, their hostility towards the principles that show in the news that somebody is above the law or why should somebody be above the law or where's the accountability here or my God, wow, what a double standard happening as it plays out in these very big headlines. If you have that viewpoint on these high profile cases, imagine what's happening in the millions of others that are not getting the attention of a red light that's recording every moment and putting that magnifying glass. Imagine what that's like. And so I hope people understand the transferability of what we talk about on air and the big major cases everyone's talking about and see that it's reflective and illustrative of what's happening on other levels. And once people start to bridge those gaps, it's almost the equivalent of having led the proverbial horse to water and watching it drink mm-hmm. without you dunking ahead, you know, throwing it in their face. I, the book is in many ways um, episodic for this reason that 
Um, I invite you to walk through the experience yep. and see what you would have done and what ought to have been done. And I continue that as a journalist. I continue that as a talk show host. I continue that as an analyst. But I will always be a storyteller. And I will always be a proponent of civil rights. And I will always be someone who will fight to the day I die to ensure people realize civil rights is not an era. Right. Not an era. Absolutely not. There's like dinosaur, (laughs) I can't even get the paleo, whatever. Those eras. Those are eras. Right. 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 Civil rights is not. (laughs) Is a concept. That's And it should be fluidly through every aspect of our lives. And so... I will do what I can to disrupt that and disrupt through truth. That's excellent. And I, I really want to zero in on storytelling. We both share that. Yeah, absolutely. This commitment to storytelling. Narratives change hearts yes. and they change minds, yes. right? And then we can provide the research and we can provide the data to back that up. But it's the stories that change right. the hearts and the minds. Yeah. And what I also loved about what you just said is it's not just the high-profile cases. Right. And so I think when um, both of us write and when you know, there are other books you know, who talk, that talk about the criminal legal system, what's so powerful about what you do here is that it reminds people those high-profile cases are not one-offs. Right. Oh, right? right. They are not right. isolated incidents. But this is the day-to-day lived reality mm-hmm. of so many people in our country, and I think you do that very, very well uh, in your book. Well, and thank so, you. And, of course, and to back, you, you know, the data is so important, though, right? right. I mean, you know, um, Speaker Pelosi used to often say, you know, about these issues of the, the, the plural form of anecdote is not data, right? Right, right. And you kind of look at that and say, it's a great line. <laughs> However, I'm not sure which way that goes for this moment in time. But it's the idea of so often the stories that people have been saying and sharing have been relegated to the periphery as anecdotes. Yes. Okay, that happened there. All right, fine, it happened there. That's a one-off, it happened there. Right. But you see more and more the ideas of, no, no, these aren't anecdotes. There is the connective tissue that's happening here, and you have to see it to change it. And I do think that storytelling has been the number one way. I mean, I look back to, in my home state of Minnesota, there was storytelling in a teenage girl putting a cell phone camera to watch what we knew to be then the murder of George Floyd. Right. She was watching through storytelling. Do we <clears throat> think that that trial would have happened the way it had? Look at the press release compared to what we actually saw on right. camera unfold. Disturbing, graphic, barbaric in nature. Mm-hmm. The storytelling was in showing the world something. That's right. Do we think that there would have been, we invoked the Freedom Riders earlier, right. we would have had the same scenario if you didn't see the hoses on young children and dogs attacking do you think that it um, that many people across the world would have recognized the injustice happening to a Ruby Bridges without a Norman Rockwell painting, let alone right. every right. other aspect That's of right. it? Um, you know, and even to what happened on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and you can go on to any any state of affairs. Storytelling is the way that people change things. It really is because there is something about our human nature that shuts off when data. It's almost like when my kids are like, all of a sudden, I come on air and they're like. Let's change the station. Right. I'm like, but I'm, but wait, 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 hold on a second. There's something about the data and information, but there's something about being drawn in to a movie. And we, we write nonfiction. Right. We're writing the truth. Right. But there's something about people having, and times, that safe space and distance of vicariously seeing and going, how can this be? Right. And how can we make it so it's no longer? That's right. And you know what? I love that. So how can this be? 
um, I think often about shock and awe, right? Yeah, so we yeah. both were in the system, we mm -hmm. saw it, um, you know, and I keep a folder to this mm. day, an electronic folder of all the cases that are shock and awe, even for me, wow. having been there. And I, think I can't really, imagine that case. That, well, no, that's, that's pretty thick. That's pretty thick. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I kept thinking yeah. that when I was reading, I said, oh, this is definitely shock and awe. Right. I was, oh, right. and I've been there, and I was right. like, still, shock and awe. Right. And I think that's important. How could this be? So writing stories like this should cause every reader to say, how could this be? Right. How can we stand for that? So I, I definitely really appreciate your, your storytelling. And not um, just the fake pearl clutching either, right? <laughs> right? Where you're like, oh, that's shocking. Well, no. do, you, do you have any more matcha? Is there, a, is there soy milk available for right now? Can you make a double steam? Like, Hello. the idea of being able to move on. That's right. These stories, and you write about why. I mean, I'm looking at the cover, and it's a, it's a child with a target on the back with a backpack. And I can't help but think of Khalif Browder. Right. Absolutely. I can't help but think about all the young children. I mean, I have a little boy and yes. a little girl. I can't help but think about these moments. And just the idea of we've got to get past the point where we say we're shock and awe translates into thoughts and prayers. And then, well, right. that's that. Right. Too much compartmentalizing that you talked about earlier, right? Exactly. Like we cannot do that. Exactly. We need to, right, we have to live, we have to breathe, we have to function, yeah. but we have to own these stories as our stories, yeah. right? Whether you're inside the American system or out. American stories. American stories. I love that. Yeah. I love that. So look, as we, as we begin to come to a close, I want to come back to, you know, th this book for you is every bit as biographical, right, mm -hmm. um, as it is narratives about other people's story, right? And you really grapple quite deeply with your own tensions, where we started. So circle back to, to that, you know, this notion of you're grappling with your own identity. What does it mean to be a mother of black right. children, mm -hmm. right? And yet occupying this space. So there's some really good quotes. And it was, it was funny, as I was sort of thinking back on this book, at the beginning of your book, you, you start, you talk about, I walked away from my four-year commitment at the United States Attorney's Office, um, not knowing whether I had been a proud champion or a coward, mm. complicit or exonerated, or the public's humble servant or its slave. That's right mm. at the beginning. About midway through the book, you sort of come back to this and you say, you wonder whether or not your presence in the system perpetuates injustice or disrupts it. And then we get to the end. <laughs> and I'm like waiting for some resolution, right? And she comes back, you come back again, and, you're, and you say, I wish I could return to a time when I believed that justice was binary, achievable, and universally understood. And basically, your, your message is that the system isn't working well for pretty much anyone. It isn't working very well for anyone. And so my, my sort of closing questions for you is how do you feel about that now? Have you gotten some, some closure, some reconciliation in your mind about those competing identities? And then really, as I think about your children. Mm -hmm. And you, you sort of alluded to this, which was just so great. Um, you have two children who look up to you. Yeah. And they're going to see you as a justice warrior when they watch you on TV and they listen to you on the radio. And if one of them says to you, should I be a prosecutor, what will you say? Mm. <laughs> Read my book! We're going to have any you, you know, know what, though, girl. I tell you, I tell you what, um, first, the first part, the reconciliation notion. Yeah. Um, I wish it was fully resolved, yeah. but for it to be fully resolved, the system would have to have been transformed. That's right. That's right. I think it's the process of transforming and the way we look at different neighborhoods gentrifying. Right. <laughs> this is transforming. It is still aspirational, just like the United States is not yet who it is on paper. The justice system, I mean, the legalism is still aspiring to be so. 
Um, and as I mentioned, the word gentrifying, obviously the negative connotations that come around about the displacement of things. Yeah. I hope that as we transform, we're not displacing humanity and fairness in the process just for the goal of being able to suggest that it looks better somehow to have, you know, something cleaned up, put under the rug and displaced. That's that's not what we need to be. Um, But I think there are so many moments where I have seen the clouds breaking and it's been recently and it's been for the reasons we've articulated the idea of no longer having certain stories relegated to anecdotes, people having more receptivity Um, to the idea that this is, in fact, truth and what can be done. And the average person believing there is agency in changing it. Now, we're not fully there. We are nowhere near fully there. Um, We are perhaps Sisyphus rolling a boulder. But unlike that legendary Greek mythology, it's not just Sisyphus being watched by communities to figure out whether that one person can do it. I think in many respects, we've got communities coming together and diverse ones we're helping to push that boulder. And that's where we have not been in a long time. Right. Maybe because we didn't, know we didn't know we needed to be still, but we're there again. And as far as my children, you know, I've always told them that, and it's really a, a testament to my own parents. I was so grateful. I, I love my parents. I'm still very much the baby of my household. And they're like, can you stop calling so much? Right. But I'm like, no, what do you mean? Of course. <laughs> um, but I really tell you, they showed me who they were. My parents yeah. were often confessional in the ideas of how they raised us. We were always invited into the conversation. We were always aware of whatever troubles and tri- trials and tribulations. We were always aware of their vulnerabilities and their strengths because they wanted their children to see them. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's a continuation of that. And I know that I have grown by virtue of my parents allowing me to see unblindfolded what it's like to be a woman, a black person in this country to be somebody entrepreneurially in some aspects, yeah. to be some justice-oriented. And for my children, um, I believe that they will see and understand. And if they choose one day, to, of the many things I hope they will be, which if they tell me one day, if I ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up, and you give me one answer, I haven't done my job. Oh, I love you that. better have a number of things that you're hoping to accomplish because mm-hmm. every day you wake up and your eyes open yep. on this side of the grass, you better be thinking, I always joke around, I say, I want to be the kind of woman who when I wake up in the morning, the devil says, ah, she's up again. She's awake again. I love it. Um, that's how I want my kids to be. Yes. And if that means that they pursue the law from that respect, so be it. But they better have learned from the experience of their mother. And they better be even quicker to unapologetically enter the rooms they're in as their entire self with the benefit of someone they know's perspective, and all of our collective wisdom. I mean, if we are, I heard yesterday someone say, the goal is always to be thought of one day as a good ancestor. Mm, That's what these books, I hope, will do. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And then maybe the the harder, the flip side of that Mm. is, what do you tell your children when they have to show up in these spaces? I'll I'll be, be quite frank. There were times in your reading where I found your colleagues at the United States Attorney's Office to be a little obnoxious. A I'm little. putting it nicely. There you go. Woo! Some uh, were. Some were very... <laughs> some were. And of course you had great so. folks, right. and so I don't want to, you know, by any means overstate that, but that there was a level of arrogance and there was a level of dismissiveness yeah. and condescension. And you talk about um, a white male colleague who um, was really quite, you know, uh, offensive to a black of defendant, mocking of, of him. Yeah. And so I wanted to know, so you, you, you've got, you've reared these children and they're social justice warriors, right? And they've got all these different things that they can do mm-hmm. to achieve that end. But how do they show up 
and keep their soul intact, right? Um, and to remain healthy yeah. and whole when you work sometimes in spaces um, where as a black woman you feel acutely that, that arrogance and that dismissiveness, even yeah. among the, the folks who you thought as you entered the door were going to be your allies. Right. Well, you know, um, to be totally confessional, I hope that my children and none of our children will have to be social justice warriors. Mm. In your lifetime, in their lifetime? That is my profound hope. Um, I also know that's a fool's errand in thinking that. But that is the goal, that they will be able to have the breadth and scope of what they'd like to do, not have to necessarily include fighting in the way that we have had to, our parents, our grandparents, and others have had to. But I also want them to understand, just as I said, that the civil rights is an era, it's fluid, and it includes what you are, and about showing up for others as well, and not just waiting until it impacts you individually to have and feel concern about these issues. Um, But I also think, as many parents face this, I find myself engaged in a bit of doublespeak inadvertently, Mm -hmm. where on the one hand, I'm telling my children, mommy will always be there, and the other saying, I'm not always going to be around, figure this out, you know, or if you're ever in trouble, dial 911, these officers will help you. Don't trust every officer. Right. It's you to think about these things, right? Or the ideas of, you know, you love everyone and everyone is loving you and you, everyone is God's child. People will hate you. There is hate in the world. And you have these moments where I almost equate it to, um, I thought perhaps I would be able to approach my kid's childhood as like a museum, right? In the sense of, all right, we're going to go to this wing, we're going to visit this now, and it's going to match your maturity level, and you're going to have these eye-opening experiences. Then when I'm ready to take you to different parts, we'll go there. And in reality, life happens. Reality happens, and you are thrust into the wing of the museum that you didn't think you'd ever be in, let alone had years to come. Incidents like when your child, like my son, is a giant for whatever reason, and he mm-hmm. tracks over the 100 percentile all the time, and realizing the comparisons that might be drawn to a Tamir Rice right. being viewed Absolutely. as a man. Yes. The idea of my kids wanting independence to walk and roam as they please mm-hmm. and wondering if the packet of Skittles in their pockets mm-hmm. will invite a neighbor's scrutiny. The idea of your son or daughter eating ice cream in their home and being mistaken as if it's someone else's apartment, let alone an Elijah McClain walking down the street to be injected with ketamine and rendered brain dead right. and apologizing on the way for for reacting. And that these are the stories as parents of black children that we want to shelter them, but we want to instill the resilience and the wherewithal and to have that adrenaline self-preservation That's instinct right. kick in. Um, but it's difficult. It's for very me. difficult. It, it's very hard. And yes. my son is beginning to read this book. Mm. All right, he's only nine. He's getting to read the book. Um, and he's already starting to ask the questions, just as, like many people, I work from home during the pandemic, and I you know, have a home studio that I often broadcast from, and my children will be looking up at me, watching me talk about, say, the Derek Chauvin trial. And my kids would say, Mommy, I just heard you say that George Floyd called for his mother. Wow. Would you come for me if that were me? And realizing in that moment that I have a nine-year-old son who sees himself in a man dying on the ground and wondering if I will be there, trying to process this information, right? My daughter asking questions like, why do we say, say her name? What's that about? And wanting, like every other mother in this world, to say, let's make some Rice Krispie treats. Let's go for a walk. Let's do a scavenger hunt. Do anything else but this. And realizing that in this moment, I have to 
have the conversation globally and have the talk individually and not have the benefit of maybe the distance of a camera. My kids, as you know, mask on or not, you know, children will respond to your eyes. They see the truth in it and they can see and sense any fear or blood in the water or uncertainty and having to be direct and God, not wanting them to even know the truth. Exactly. You cannot shield them, right? It's such a difficult tightrope for parents to walk, right? On the one hand, preparing the child for the inevitable moments um, that will come, but yet trying to build up that resilience you talked about and that self-identity and that pride and, you know, and that, you know, safety, a sense of safety. And so there are two things that struck me. One is, you know, I'm sitting across from you. You're an attorney, you're a professor, you're a journalist. This isn't about class. No. Right? Although we both have it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) There you go. Although it's there. It it is a parent. Okay. Um, But that so many people say, isn't this a question about class, right? You know, poverty makes all of the things that we're talking about worse. I'm I'm very clear about that. But at the same time, these issues, there's no, you know, class that you can attain as a black woman that will shield you from having to have those conversations with your, your black child. And so I just, I just, I heard that. And so I think the way that, that we can end is I was just so struck by this notion that you have a seven, you said seven and eight, seven, seven and, and nine, nine yeah. seven and nine year old, and you have hope at this moment that you, that by the time they're our age, mm-hmm. that they won't have to sit across from one another and have this conversation. And I do, I want to, I, I really want to say I'm with you in that this is a moment mm-hmm. and that folks that look like every, you know, color of the spectrum are coming together around some of these critical issues, particularly in light of the killing, the brutal killing of George Floyd on television um, or right in front of our eyes. But what gives you hope? What, uh, you know, what gives you hope that in that short a period of time, because we young, so we just talking about 10 years. Right. We're just 17 right, of course, but, no, no, no. of course. But, We're know, basically in junior high. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, what gives you hope in that, that short a period of time that we will become obsolete, that our roles will become obsolete in this conversation? Because I know and believe that optimism is not the Achilles heel of progress. It's part of it. It's required. The alternative for cynicism is what we resign ourselves to the status quo. It may be unreasonable to be hopeful, but unreasonable people are who change the world. That's right. Not that's wanting right. to say, well, that's the way it's always been. And for those <laughs> who think that the expectation that life can change in an instant, what have the last two years been like? I mean, you have a mask in your purse, your pocket right now. Right. There are, right. You hardly see lips and teeth anywhere. Yeah. You, yeah. Um, the, the world has changed in so many respects, not just here, but globally. The views of January 6th will haunt people in the sense of what we see yes. in terms of an insurrection that happened here this quickly. The idea of a four-year period under a prior president um, and how quickly the world's view changed of the role model of democracy. Um, there are so many moments that life has changed in an instant. So why should progress around um, racial equity and hope and change, why should that be precluded from the opportunity for fast action? Why? And I think that that's where we need to be. I'm not hoping to prolong, you know, the status quo of the devastation of COVID-19. But let it be perhaps a catalyst for understanding if the world can change on a dime to that in that breath. And why can't my children one day, by the time I'm 41 years old, 
why can't my son and my daughter have the option that over a span of three decades, their lives could be different? Why it. not? I love it. I love it. I hope you're right. I do, too. <laughs> I hope you're right. Uh, I do too. And I hope we can get there without another tragedy. And I think that's, I think that's what really... Well, perhaps that's the, that is the moment that people start to feel. I don't know that that's... I don't know. I hope that's the case. I want that to be the case. But I think there is a domino effect occurring. But once the dominoes rest, I think change will come. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>